and welcome to the Citizens of Mass Town Podcast. I'm your host, TJ Lanemeyer. With me, as always, James O'Hara. Hello. That's going to be really disappointing if I ever don't make it. You yeah. Have to try to change. You're just going to say that anyways, and then be like, oh, right. I'm just going to be like, with nah. me, as always, Sean I'm Hogan. Hogan. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> that this, are they just the same person? It turns out we just put a voice modulator on. It's all the same person. Oh, yeah. And it's like a weird voice modulator. It's like, it's not like you're changing octaves. It's just changing like other, like tempo. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you even doing that? <laughs> a lot of efforts going into this. <laughs> not a lot of pain. <laughs> right, well, so. let's, uh, let's yeah. jump right to it. Your Washington Nationals are your World Series champions. I was going to say, citizens of the World Series champions. Nats town. Yeah, I don't know how that fits. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty great. Everybody likes to hear that. It's always fun, you know, random people tweeting it out, talking about it. You meet up with people you haven't seen since it happened mm-hmm. who are also Nats fans, and you're like, hey, uh, you know, the Nats are World Series champions. I don't know if you heard. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Uh, you know, basically like a reporter, like care to comment. Uh, talk about how you felt when the Nats were World Series champs. Walk us through that moment. (laughs) Yeah, it was... I mean, they left here down 3-2. Yeah, and a pretty bad spot is probably the worst way they could go down 3-2. Oh, absolutely. Not only are you down going back home to the Astros, but you have lost any modicum of momentum that you might have had. Yeah. And you lost all three of your games at home. And not even in like interesting sort of close ways. Like all three of them were pretty much over by the second inning. Yeah, because even the even game three, they didn't even they put guys on base but they couldn't get them right, home. But they couldn't get them in, but also they gave up runs to the Astros so that they were quickly behind. So mm-hmm. yeah, game three was still a little more interesting uh, than the other two games, but it was still, in general, it's not really that close. You were kind of just hanging out. I mean, everybody hung out anyways because it's a World Series game. Well, I was a little disappointed that there wasn't that much to get super excited about and besides the guy getting hit in the chest while carrying two Bud Lights. Yes. Um, the crowd did well though. I mean, for oh, yeah. not being in a majority of those three games, <laughs> they the crowd was ready to they go. They were loud and into it. Uh, yeah, it was just disappointing that they, they were taken out so fast. But you know, even then, uh, especially game three, uh, like you said, they were putting people on base a lot. Anytime they were getting two, three guys on base, the crowd was getting back into it. Um, it was a lot more proactive cheering than I think I've ever seen at Nats Park. Yeah. Nats Park is very much reactive. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to do something good, but like once something good happens, it'll keep up that noise level for a while. It's so like with the wild card game, you know, people weren't going crazy. But once Soto got the hit, then it was just nuts the whole rest of the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a fairly extreme example, but there are other, you know, in general, that's part, you know, waits for the big moment happen, then gets up and cheers for it. And then it's kind of still up and cheering for a while. Uh, the World Series games was very different, you know, at least in the early goings and even in the later innings, 
uh, just you know, based on the sheer number of people who are still hanging out and still, still cheering for things and standing up when they were down four nothing, four one, eight one, kind of you know, not really in the game, and people were still trying to be like, get in the game. So it was really fun. I mean, it's a fun atmosphere for the most part. It could have been a lot more fun if they had pulled off some W's, but yeah, they're not really the best spot to be go in going back to Houston. <clears throat> no. So they head down there for game six and things start to turn around for the Nats. I am pulling up. The- yeah. Well, there's the, the best is, you know, people still felt sort of confident for game six because you had Steven Strasburg going uh, in that game. That's the other big thing. You know, not only did you lose the three games, but also Max Scherzer wasn't able to pitch game five and didn't look like he'd be able to pitch at game all. seven at all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you felt confident in game six. You're like, all right, well, Steven Strasburg's going. He's awesome in the playoffs. He should be able to do it again. Keep it a close game. You know, scratch a couple runs across on Verlander. You know, put put yourself up. Make it two games. Basically, the plan was like, you have a good chance for this game six. You win that. You're in a game seven. Anything can happen in a game seven or a game five, as Nationals fans have come very aware of. Mm-hmm. So it's like it still wasn't <clears throat> optimistic. You still were like, oh, the Nats definitely have this. But it was also there was a path you could see. Yeah. Uh, but it all rested on Strasburg crushing it. So it was very nice that Strasburg crushed it. Well, and that game started out. Like, it started out well for the Nats. They put one across. Yeah. And then turned right around and gave the lead back to the Astros. <laughs> right. And it suddenly was like, son of a bitch. Yeah. And then they scored two in the fifth, two in the seventh, two in the ninth. Do I have yeah, this I mean, right? I do have game six, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. <clears throat> that, just, that just sounds similar to Yeah, the it was like, wait a second. <laughs> um. So, yeah. To tie it back up, uh, Verlander becomes the only person to lose six, six World Series games. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, they gave up a home run to Kurt Suzuki, which is shocking. Um, I think that tied it, right? Yes. And then there was one more home run. I can't remember what I really just remember what happened in game seven. Uh, so, Eaton homered, Soto That's homered. Right. Uh so wait, am I going? Eaton tied it. Soto brought them ahead. Oh, okay. Did Suzuki homer off him in the first time they faced him? Oh, yeah, that might have been game two. Whoops. Yeah, because that turned yeah, on that's that. Right, that's right. That's right. That's right. That big inning. Yeah. Yeah, it's got game two and game six. So, you know, All this Verlander winning against Justin so Verlander just yeah. blends together. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. So Adam Eaton became the first player. I think he was the first player in World Series history to have one game with a sack bunt and a home run. But he definitely was the first player to have two World Series games with a sack bunt and a home run in them. <laughs> Which is because why would anybody else be trying to accomplish that goal? <laughs> uh, this was Anthony Rendon's big game. Yes. One of them. Uh, so he... Singled in the first, which brought home Turner. Uh, he homered in the seventh and scored Gomes in the process, which made it 5-2. Yeah. And then doubled 
uh, scoring Trey and Eaton as well in the ninth. Yeah, uh, you say it's Rendon's big game as if he didn't just also have a big game the next night too. Uh-huh. So that was kind of key. Um, you know, that was something we hadn't been seeing in the World Series to that point. Rendon had been struggling pretty hard uh, relative to how well he had done in the first two rounds. Uh, Soto had the big game in game one, but then hadn't been doing too much after that. Uh, you know, and they hadn't really been seeing that much from their secondary guys. I mean, that was kind of the keys for game six and game seven was can Rendon and Soto start hitting like stars again? Can you see somebody from that second level of, um, you know, Eaton, uh, Kendrick, it's kind of, well, not Kendrick, but like Eaton, Robles. If some of those kind of secondary hitters, like can one of them step up in a big moment? Uh, and Eaton did that twice. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, because the, that's how the offense works. It's, it's driven by Rendon and Soto crushing it with a little bit of a sprinkling of other, you know, of the other kind of secondary hitters showing up. Game six was the game with the uh, the first base call, right? Yes, yes. Where because then Rendon, Rendon hit his home run right after that. That's right. To make it five two, anyways. So they were already winning before that call. Yes, they were up three um, two. But yeah, but it was a very close game, and that would have put them on second and third in a really good spot to get some more runs. Uh, and then they ended up, you know, Turner was out, and then they and Eaton got out. So then it was down to two outs for Rendon, who then hit, proceeded to smash a home run, uh, you know, in vindication for his best friend getting screwed, <laughs> which was nice. Yeah, that entire thing was just hilarious to watch. Oh, it was. I mean... It sucked at the time. Oh, absolutely. But I'm talking about, like, I'm sitting here on my couch and I'm watching this. And, like, they're zooming in on Trey's face. And he's yelling about... um, Joe Torre being Joe Torre. Yeah. And he's like, they're calling Joe Torre. He's right there. I can see him. Just go ask him. (laughs) I mean, just phenomenal work by, by the video crew. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm surprised Trey didn't get in more trouble for that. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's also not his fault. He didn't know that we were going to have that on camera. No. He's just mad and yelling with people in the dugout. It's not like he went out on the field and started yelling that. No. Like and it wasn't like he was yelling court. at the umps. He was yelling at other players yeah, of like, he's dugout. right there. Right, exactly. So that's, you know, <clears throat> I'm a little surprised he didn't get in trouble just because it was public. But on the other hand, I don't think he should have because, you know, I mean, that's what he's just doing, you know. He's what are you going to find him for? Boys. Yeah. He wasn't like outwardly cursing that could right. be seen on screen no, or anything. Like, and he wasn't directing it at the umpire. So, exactly. what are you mad about? Um, but in the end, that play uh, doesn't impact the game whatsoever. Uh, and the Nationals go on to game seven. Yeah. When they almost get eight and a third, almost pushed Strasburg all the way through to another complete game of the World Series, something we hadn't seen since 2017 with Justin Verlander, I think, in the ALCS, was the last playoff complete game we had had. Uh, I can't I don't remember the last one actually in the World Series was. I think it's probably like 2011, 
Let's see. Last word. Trying to remember. But I mean, he had command of all his pitches. The changeup looked really nice. That was his one issue in game two. Uh, was his changeup? They had Astros. Astros were able to lay off of it pretty easily. The Astros were having a lot more trouble laying off his pitches. Uh, got some good strikeouts. Got a lot of good weak contact. Um, you know, just pretty much mastery of the game. Uh, 2015. It was Johnny Cueto. Oh, that's right. It was Johnny Cueto. <clears throat> you know what it was? I knew, I think I had an idea it was Cueto, but I can't remember if it was Cueto when he was a John. Oh, no, he was with the Reds before the Orioles. That's right. I have him backwards. Yeah. yeah. So he did it with the Royals. Um, yeah, I mean, I really thought the only reason that they would be saving him is if they needed him to come in and get an out to three outs the following yeah. night. Yeah. Uh, well, they said after the game that he was really tired and they had just pushed him for like three extra innings because they needed it and he was able to do it. So they're like, so that's what they said before he went in for the ninth. He was already told that that was just get this one last guy and then we're going to pull you out. It's fair. Um, no, nah, that was all around, you know, besides the umpires screwing some stuff up and the Nats waiting a little longer than you would have liked to start scoring runs. Uh, all around, it was a really great game. It was a lot of fun. Um, that might have been the, the best game they played in totality through the World Series. Yeah. Because they had, you know, the game one and two, they won those, but that was, you know, we really had some good offense. Um, and the pitching was having more issues. Uh, especially Scherzer and Strasburg are just having trouble kind of getting deep into the game. Uh, the Astros are doing a really good job of taking breaking balls. Uh, so those were a little more in doubt that I feel like this game, game six was probably the only World Series game where the Nats seem to have control of it, you know, pretty much the entire game. Yeah. Unlike all, in like all facets of the game, not necessarily just. Yeah. I mean, they got kind of lucky. Game two, Strasburg didn't go super deep, but also then they had a huge inning off of a lot of, of Alex Bregman kicking the ball over and over again um, to get it to the point where they were able to stick like Javi Guerra and people like that in to cover those, you know, Tanner Rainey and Fernando Rodney to cover the end of the game. So you didn't have to really worry about the relief pitching. Game six, Strasburg just made it so you didn't have to worry about the relief pitching. So it all comes down to game seven on Wednesday. And let me know if you've heard this one before. The Nationals fell behind early. Yeah, <laughs> again. And uh, uh, had some nothing. issues hitting the starting pitching. <laughs> yes, they had a lot of issues. I mean, Granke was killing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that was really the first part time we really got hope during that game was when Cole went out to the bullpen in the fifth and started warming up. And hilariously, after the game, we found out that that was his own choice to start throwing then. It wasn't like Hinch had told him to start warming up already. But that's when he he, saw Cole in the fifth and at the time thought that that was a manager's decision. It was like, oh, man, they're going to pull Grinky like Mm -hmm. way too soon. Um, and let, you know, oh, get it to the bullpen. That's what I want to see, you well, know, because they're not going to hit Granky the way he's throwing. No, the, what Granky was throwing, they were having significant issues with. And 
even having somebody like Cole come in, regardless of if he wasn't a hundred percent, um, he's still very, very good, but they would have much preferred to see 97 mile an hour heat and try and hit it. Well, and seen that and seen it coming from a normal delivery. And cause the other thing Granky was doing is he was really varying the amount of time the ball from when he started his motion to when it was actually being delivered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was flirting with balking pretty much every single time by almost stopping at the top with it when, you know, when he's had like up before, he, you know, drives to the mound to throw the pitch. Uh, there were a few times there where it was just barely moving because he was trying to be as slow as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were other times where it was pretty quick. Uh, so that also messed him up. Uh, he is, his breaking self was really good. He was getting everything into the zone. Um, and he was getting probably two inches on either side of the zone at a certain point. Right. Like he was getting, not to say that the umpiring was bad, but the zone that was being given that evening was beneficial to him at that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, and Scherzer <clears throat> took advantage of the same zone. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not too upset. Um, I, mean, I think the no, funniest it just thing made is it that, that much more difficult for the hitters right. at that point. But I, the funniest thing is I thought the zone was pretty good for the most part um, until the commenters noted that it was, you know, that the umpire was pretty good. And then he seemed to start giving a couple extra crazy ones. Um, but he had been very, you know, he was very consistent, even though it was a little wide. Uh, but I, I think when you guys, guys like Scherzer and Greinke, who can hit spots like that, you know, if the catcher sets up an inch off and the pitcher is able to p- deliver it perfectly to hit that spot an inch off, I'm fine with that getting a strike call. I'm more annoyed when it's, you know, way out of the zone, like in the other batter's box, uh, or with those times where the ball, you know, he throws it's aim, he's supposed to be thrown to one corner and he throws on the outside corner, and he throws it and ends up on the inside corner mm-hmm. and that still gets called a strike. It's like, you know, or an inch off the inside corner and that's still a strike. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get that. You get, you get the extra inch if you're doing an awesome job and you're hitting the spots perfectly and you're just showing you have a mastery of the baseball you're pitching. If you're not doing that, you don't get the extra strikes. <laughs> Uh, so the seventh inning rolls around. Uh, Anthony Rendon leads off. Uh, yes, yeah. leads off. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to remember what <clears throat> I don't think there was. No, there wasn't. So he hits the homer um, to cut the lead to 2 1. Yeah, and that was Grinky's. That was pretty much the only bad pitch he threw the entire night. That was really the only one. Uh, and then he uh, threw to Soto. Um, and Soto, Soto ended up making getting the walk. Soto stole a pitch. Yeah, on that walk, one. The second ball. Yeah, there was one pitch, which that's my other thing. So, A, it was a bad call by the umpire. It was a strike, not a ball. Yeah. B, though. If you have been getting the calls on either side of the plate all evening, yeah. you have no room to cry about the one that's wrong. <laughs> I, mean, I think it, in the heat of the moment, though, that's just annoying. It's like, what the hell? You've been calling all of these strikes, and then I throw that one, and then all of a sudden, that's a ball? Like, you can't be doing that to me. But I mean, Soto stole that because he started that shuffle so fast mm-hmm. on it that, you know, it just helped the umpire be like, all right, you know, he saw, he thinks he saw a ball. He's confident. Um, you know, I think it was a ball too. 
and lets it go, you know, calls it ball too. Uh, it was awesome just seeing Soto trying to get in Granky's head, very clearly getting in Granky's head through that hole at bat. Um, so after that ball call, Granky kind of, as he said, visibly was complaining a bit. And so stuck out his tongue at him, (laughs) (laughs) giving huge shuffles. And then on ball four, do this stupid little bat flip it, (laughs) like with one finger out of his hand off towards his own dugout. Um, which is, you know, you know, that's the kind of way I want to see people try to piss off Granky, knowing that, you know, he's easy to annoy. Yeah. Um, that's a much better way than the way the Yankees fans decided to do it in the LCS hurling expletives at him in the bullpen. <laughs> Not as great, but just having a little bit of extra fun up there when you know he hates extra fun. That's the best way to get into his head. Uh, and it was kind of disappointing that they pulled him and we didn't get to see the results of what, you know, what Cranky might have done when he was upset that Soda was hanging out on first base. Um, Maybe that factored into the decision. I doubt it, though. That would be kind of funny if they're like, oh, great. Now Grinky's mad. Let's just pull him. But pulling Grinky ended up turning out okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, as two batters later, Howie Kendrick sends one to the right field foul pole. Right to it. Yeah. Directly to it. Very nice. On it. <laughs> doink, very nice doinking sound. Uh, George Springer looks very sad. Uh, as my dad pointed out, that ball wasn't really that far up mm-hmm. the pole. Springer probably could have tried to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem to really want to. It was very odd. He like got very close, but didn't really get anywhere close. They didn't even make any sort of effort for a catch. I mean, may, it would have been extremely difficult, but it was kind of funny be like hey man that is your season right there flying by you uh my best guess is maybe he was assuming it was foul and didn't want to catch it for a sack fly uh, it's like let it go foul and just try to you know get out of the at bat the other way but it was kind of funny seeing you know spring just kind of running and just it hit you know doink and then he just gets sad well uh and i guess this is the point that we should kind of say this is where the questionable decision-making of A.J. Hinch came in. Uh, Yeah, well, and so it's kind of funny is that it's really, there are two different levels. Um, You know, I think the best way to illustrate it, sadly, but they've won the World Series now, so it's not as sad as Matt Williams in 2014. There's two types of wrong. There's pulling Jordan Zimmerman for Drew Storen in Game 2, which... On its face, not a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Drew Storen in 2014 was a very good relief pitcher. Jordan Zimmerman had just given up two titanic foul balls to, uh, I think, Buster Posey. Yeah. Um, before Posey just got a single or walk. I can't remember. I think Posey singled. Um, so, you know, he wasn't looking strong. Zimmerman had thrown a lot of pitches. You know, it wasn't, you know, all you need is one more out. You have a really good relief pitcher. Have him do it. It doesn't work out. And the criticism you can say is, you know, maybe that's not managing to the moment correctly. That sometimes you don't just put in somebody who you de- who should be better because, hey, this starting pitcher has been shutting him down and only needs one more out for this shutout at home. Just let him do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
You know, and that's a kind of minor criticism that I think both sides are justified. The more major criticism kind of type is in game four when you let Aaron Barrett just dick around on the mound and lose the game for you while you had, you know, Steven Strasburg, Drew Storen, Tyler Clippard, all these different people sitting in the bullpen ready to come in instead. And you're like, well, we'll just let Aaron Barrett go out there and lose the game for us. Oh, I think that's the best decision. You know, and that's, it's something where it's just, it's not justifiable in any way whatsoever. And you're very confused. It's like, why, why were you letting that happen? You had so many other options. So I think pulling Granky for Harris is definitely the first one is kind of the Zimmerman decision. The, the only thing that I have with it is he, they had worked the hell out of Will Smith the entire yeah. postseason. Well, and that would be the other thing you'd say is, if Will Smith and Will Smith had apparently said the day before that he was pretty tired, mm-hmm. um, and you had worked him pretty hard, you had a lot of other good relievers. I mean, that's that's the kind of things. Maybe you put the wrong player out there in Smith. I don't think you necessarily made the wrong decision to pull Granky. You, he was doing really well. You probably could have left him in, and he could have gotten out of that situation. Yeah, but if he um, decides I don't that think he's pissed off because the call and lays yeah, exactly. one in or like there's plenty of things that could go wrong. I'm with you. Like that the act of pulling Grinky from the game isn't the wrong think decision. It was necessarily wrong to not go to Cole in the middle of the inning. I think Hinch made a good point that, you know, he has done that in the playoffs before with uh, Dallas Keuchel and I think McCullers, one of his other starting pitchers in like twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen and then watch them, you know, lose. <laughs> And it's like, oh, you know, I don't think it makes sense to put a starter into an inning with runners on base. And I agree with that. That's, you know, that's kind of hard for them to do. I got to feel like uh, I obviously haven't done the math on it, but at least recency bias tells me that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, fine. So, you know, at that point, though. Why will Harris, if you thought, you know, if he's really that tired, if he's not doing that well, why don't you just go to Asuna to start that seventh inning when you knew you had Garrett Cole for at least one inning, if not two, if it was going well. So if you just go to Osuna, let Osuna get out of the seventh and then have Cole finish eight, nine and you've won. Um, that was kind of the first one, but I think. I keep saying Will Smith instead of Will Harris. Uh, yeah, it is Will Harris. It is Will Harris. Um, and we should just note, Will Harris threw five pitches. Oh, it was one of the worst, but in terms of outcomes, one of the worst relief pitching appearances of all time. Five pitches, three for strikes. One of those strikes went over the went over the fence. Yeah. And then another one was put into play. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Uh, I think it's Drew Wilkerberry got a single. Uh, and I think the real bad decision Hinch made was actually going from the seventh to the eighth. You know, you made a good call pulling Harris back out of that situation once he gave up, you know, two hits. Put in Osuna, let Osuna get out of the inning. But Osuna threw a lot of pitches just to get out of the seventh. Mm-hmm. He was so, at like close to 20 at that point to get out of that inning. Yeah, I think it was about 18, 17, 18, if I remember correctly. So. What really did not make sense to me was the eighth inning, Osuna comes back out. They're down three to two. And the reason is because, well, we're not going to put Garrett Cole in while we're losing. 
which is very interesting to me because uh, just two innings before then, uh, the other opposing manager had the decision of should he put his very good starting pitcher into relief in this game, even though he is currently losing it two to nothing. And he said, yes, let's put Patrick Corbin in there. And Corbin crushes them. I mean, it pretty much is the reason why they're allowed to make this comeback because he comes in, shuts down the sixth inning, you know, shuts them down to the seventh after they've taken the lead three to two. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, shuts them down again in the bottom of the eighth when he was starting to kind of get up there in pitch count. I mean, he looked awesome. He was in complete control of the game. Uh, if not for the pitch count, I think he would have just come for the ninth too. But you know that was your, the right decision. Is you know, I, we're losing the game to nothing? Nope. Well, I want to put Corbin in there because I want to keep be. I want to stay losing two to nothing. Well, I don't want to go to Rainey or Rodney or any of these other guys and suddenly be losing four or five nothing. I mean, it's the the same concept with uh, closers of like. If you're going to get beaten the seventh yeah. because of a high leverage situation, it doesn't make sense to save your closer for the ninth. Right. <clears throat> you know, and there's some arguments in terms of the regular season where it's like, well, you know, it's better to have them have routine. If they're a little too out of routine, they might lead to injury. Mm-hmm. But it's fine. In the playoffs, that makes no sense. And what really has made no sense is apparently the plan was we'll just let Osuna go back out to try to get a full inning. After he's already thrown about a full days of work mm-hmm. in the previous inning, while we're only losing three to two, and he just kept pushing it. I mean, he got a little lucky. The Nats only got one run, but uh, he just let Osuna hang out there and dick around and dick around until he finally let that insurance run come in, and that run was huge because now you're up four to two. Like I said, Patrick Corbin around the eighth inning was starting to get to his pitch count limit. And at three to two, Davey might've been tempted to pull him out and say, right, I'm going to let Doolittle and Hudson, you know, hopefully back to back, finish this up. You know, I don't want to push Corbin and have him being tiring a little bit and make a mistake pitch and give up a home run. And now the game is tied. Mm-hmm. Well, now that it's four to two, you can let him go batter to batter. Yep. You know, if it looks bad, you know, he walks a guy or he gives up a hit. Then you pull him out, and then that's when Doolittle or Hudson comes into the game. Uh, and if he, you know, worst case scenario, he gives up a solo home run before you pull him out, well, you're still winning four to three. Mm-hmm. You still have a one run lead. So, I mean, that insurance run is huge to let you push Corbin for that one extra inning where he was awesome. Turns out you didn't need the insurance run. But it just made no sense why Garrett Cole wasn't coming into the game then. It's a ridiculous rule to say we're only going to use them if we're winning. It's like you know you don't get another game tomorrow, right? So I'm looking at this. I don't. They actually have the pitch counts on here, which is helpful. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Ozuna through five, 11 through 12 pitches. In his two thirds yeah. of an inning in the seventh, in the seventh, which means he threw twenty four pitches <laughs> in the eighth. In the eighth, and I mean, let me tell you how this went. It was a ground out, a walk, Eaton then stole second, 
and then a fly out. And let me tell you, the ground out to Turner was six pitches. The walk to Eaton was six pitches. The fly out for Rendon was five pitches. Yeah. So you're talking that's 17 pitches right there. You're kind of thinking, okay, well, he's probably done at this point. Well, and also... Who are the people you just named? At top of the order. Yeah. So he would already threw 12 very stressful pitches trying to get them out of that last inning. And you're like, all right, normally he throws about 21. So he has to basically throw an immaculate inning against the top of the Nats order to get out of here in the amount, you know, to have normal use. Mm-hmm. So then Soto comes up, singles in Eaton, and then which another point where you're like, okay, so now he's done. Yeah. And then he comes in and five pitches later gives up the single to uh, Kendrick. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I say, you got, they got lucky that they didn't get more runs out of that. The Nets didn't happen to get more runs out of that because it yeah. was very close. Um, you know, Rendon catches the ball a little bit better. And, you know, instead of a pop out, you know, you get, you know, a line drive hit. I mean, that inning could go a lot worse. I mean, that was just crazy to me. Um but, you know, works out for the Nets. They pick up the insurance run there. Uh, Corbin shuts them down. They pick up two more insurance runs in the ninth inning just for uh, kicks and giggles. Make it easy for Daniel Hudson, who doesn't like closing, but is here closing. That was an interesting one. I assume it was some sort of, like, batter-handedness matchup thing. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why Hudson was out there instead of Doolittle. Um, not that it matters too much, but it was kind of odd. Uh... Springers of righty? I think so, yes. Yeah. So then I've been righty, righty, lefty. So I guess maybe that was that was the idea. But I to that point, Doolittle had looked a lot better the last week or so than Hudson had. Yeah. So I was a little surprised, but eh, who cares? Uh then, you know. Especially because Hudson just strikes them all out. Uh, and that's the other part problem with giving up kind of insurance runs like that. He's not using Garrett Cole is I mean, the Astros hitters just look defeated. And Jose Atuve strikes out on three pitches. I mean, in George Springer popped out to Cabrera after on his second pitch. Yeah. Like yeah, that's yeah, how they right. let off the inning was a called strike. And then a weak pop, pop out. out to the second baseman. And then the next bat and then the next batter strikes out on three pitches. At least one of them was not even close. So then Brantley comes up representing the last out um, and at least fights a little. Yeah. Um, He works it to a full count and then ends up striking out. But no, no, I don't want to take, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to take things away from the nationals. I mean, they played Mm -hmm. an awesome game. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they definitely won the game. The Astros did not lose it. No. And I, that's the same NLDS game five. You know, people make fun of what Dave Roberts was doing. But that still required the Nats to make the hits and get the runs across and win the game. Yeah. We've some seen plenty of times where a team looks like they're being handed a win and then they politely refuse it. So, you know, it let's, still was. Let's be honest. Out. We have seen the Nats yes, be politely handed a win. win. <laughs> and then say, no, thank you. You can keep it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it still was more on them to get that job done, get those hits in. You know, have a guy like Corbin shut him down, have Hudson come in and shut him down. But A.J. Hinch really didn't help his team out there. No. Uh, with the decisions he was making. So. Yeah. So that was all she wrote for your uh, 
your World Series there. And that's then came home and they might still be drinking. That could still be happening. Um, everything that I see, I mean, I guess Trey Turner isn't because he actually got he had to go to surgery. Yeah, he had surgery on his hand. So at very least the night before that surgery, he was not <laughs> drinking or eating anything, hopefully. Uh, but maybe afterwards. He's back to it now. Yeah. Self-medicating. <laughs> oh, I had a fun parade. Awesome night at the Caps game mm-hmm. where everybody was taking their shirts off even when Brian Dozier wasn't around, which was very confusing. Yeah. I was like, guys, that's his thing. Let him have it. <laughs> Stop trying to horn on, on Dozier, horn in on Dozier's thing. <laughs> Oh, when they were on the Zamboni and they all took their shirts off, Dozier wasn't even on the Zamboni. He wasn't? No. That's funny. It was, six, it was uh, <laughs> Doolittle, Turner, Eaton. Eaton, Corbin, and Gomes. Yeah. I believe we're on that. Uh, That's funny. On that one. And then Zimmerman was on the actual Zamboni and in his nice uh, gifted red cap sweater, which all the Caps players signed. Um and they gave the Caps a new Nationals batting helmet to be their player of the game award with all the Nationals players signing it. So very adorable. Some very adorable videos of them hanging out in the clubhouse after, in the locker room afterwards, drinking a lot, singing Kalma. Um, apparently now the Caps play Kalma after their wins. That's hilarious. So, you know. Nice camaraderie. It's really it's still weird because he does. It's not. It's very genuine in a way that a lot of these professional athletes in the same city relationships are not. Which is interesting um, because those two teams are particularly tight as far as supporting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wizards were big on supporting the Mystics as they were yeah. making their run and that kind of thing. And the one you never hear about, <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, that was my favorite. Is somebody pointed out it's like, you know, the Redskins, if they don't comment on it, people are like, oh man, Redskins aren't commenting on it. And then if the Redskins do comment on it, everybody's like, get the fuck out of here. Nobody cares about you. We don't want to hear from you. It's like, oh, wanna, can't win there. One of the best things that I saw was like, it was like a tweet from the Caps when they won. It was a tweet from the Mystics when they won, and a tweet from the Nats when they won. And then it was a tweet from some Redskins writer practice, about. Yeah. Bill do Callahan doing sprints. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out Danny at Records and Radio. I believe that's his tweet. Um, that one, the other nice one is the uh, the classic thank you for not you being awesome. <laughs> it's, you know, the Nationals, Capitals, the Mystics, and then not you is obviously the Redskins. Um, yeah. Then the other, the last meme that I saw that kind of classic is that one where it's like, don't insult X. And then it's like, blah, blah, blah. It's awesome. This is that. And so it's like, don't insult DC sports teams. The Capitals are champions. The Nationals are champions. The Mystics are champions. The Wizards fired Ernie Grunfeld. The Redskins. And then it's like, DC United had Wayne Rooney or something <laughs> like that. I can't remember what the United <laughs> one was. But it's always a classic. It's like, the Redskins, eh. <laughs> Skip ahead. <laughs> so, do we want to go to off-season talk? Or do we want to go to the big story of the last 10 days? Um, 
I mean, how much is there to say besides the Astros are cheating cheaters who cheat a lot? <laughs> uh, and kind Just of in a dumb way. Absolutely brazen. <laughs> well, it, the amazing thing is that nobody seemed to notice. I, I mean, I have to go back. But I, I mean, I feel like if they had, we would have seen. Like, you don't see people retweeting like these prescient tweets of people in 2017 going like, Hey, anybody hear that noise at the Astros game? No, and even more so, like even in the story, they bring up Danny Farquhar. Yeah, is that his name? Who uh, did hear it? Who did hear it? And he was like, "I was pissed." And man, I wish the media would have talked to me that day. And it's like, yeah. you didn't talk to anybody else, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, it's like, well, and the problem is that they, you know, that's one thing, and he can't know for sure whether. They were being stolen. You know, it was just kind of a, you know, it's a hunch. Um, and the problem is the other thing is, I like people point out, you know, the Astros obviously were not the only team stealing signs. Every team tries to steal signs in way, some ways. So, you know, you got to be careful. Uh, I think the Nats, David Johnson and Joe Madden show the issues you can have if you use information, you know, to accuse a team of cheating and then you get start calling people weird wusses uh, or Frank Robinson and Mike, Mike social will show you in 2000 was it 2005 <laughs> or 2006. I think it was 2005. Yeah. Where, uh, Jose Guillen knew that one of the angels guys used pine tar and was cheating and then led to a Sosha and Robinson duking it out on the field. <laughs> it's <was> pretty great. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, you gotta be kind of careful when you have the suspicions, especially with Farquhar where he didn't really have any, evidence besides he thought he was hearing a noise every time a changeup was being called yeah uh, and then when he switched it up he didn't seem to be hearing the noise anymore yeah yeah it, just at the time now seeing the all available evidence we see now it seems very obvious yeah. um, but it, it is kind of funny that you don't really see any of those comments from the time of people being like i feel like i keep hearing this weird noise at the astros well, game and not even that so say Nobody recognized the noise. Yeah. But then you have like photos and different things that are going around where it's like, there's a screen in the tunnel. Right. Right uh, there. People don't go in that tunnel. <laughs> Reporters don't use that tunnel. But uh, like, officials don't use that tunnel. But nobody saw that photo before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, nobody was looking for it. I mean, that's the problem. Is mm -hmm. it's, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, but I mean, that's kind of how like action movies, superhero movies, all those kind of things kind of try to play it. It's like, there's a lot people don't notice if they don't want to notice it. Yeah. Or they're not thinking about noticing it. And it's like, this, then the second you say like, hey, that's right there. It's like, whole, oh, wait. I mean, it's like the Emperor's New Clothes. <laughs> so yeah. it's just like, cool, whatever. And then it's like, it's like, that guy's banging on a trash can so he knows when the changeup is coming. And everybody's going, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he has banging. I hear it all the time now. Um, so, I mean, here in just the last couple of days, different things have come out. So I guess last, late last week. Yeah. Uh, names of hitters and or coaches that were involved came out. Right. One being Alex Cora, the current manager of your Boston Red Sox. And then the other being Carlos Beltran, newly named manager <laughs> of the New York Mets. <clears throat> not great timing for the Mets. Maybe could have waited one more week on that hire. Yep. Yeah. Probably would have been someone different at that point. Um, and then on top of that, 
yesterday, uh, there was an email that was circulating from Kevin Goldstein, uh, previously a baseball prospectus now, mm-hmm. or as of, he's with the Astros in what, 2012, 2013, something like that. Uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Um, suggesting the use of cameras and binoculars in different things to try and see what we could see from the dugouts. Right. <laughs> or excuse me, what you could see of the opposing dugouts. Dugout. So yeah. scouts in the stands using those methods. Right. To see what they could see. So I mean, the, the interesting thing, I would say punishment will be hard. It's trying to figure out what punishment you could lay down that would get teams to not do it again. I don't know if that's possible. Uh, the I mean, hard thing will really be. It's going to be similar to that. The Astros and cards thing from a couple of years ago. Right. Which I probably wasn't strong enough because they ended up losing a couple of draft picks though didn't they yeah higher draft picks yes but it's still you know draft picks are draft picks yeah um it's not like an nfl team or an nhl team losing draft picks yeah, or an I, nba team the interesting thing would be i would say i don't know unless it's proven that one of the players went above and beyond with the sign stealing compared to everybody else on the team i don't think you can like single out I don't think you Too can many single individuals out, here. I don't think you can single out players. I think it's definitely an organizational thing. Mm-hmm. And if there is somebody that they can scapegoat in the front office, yeah, it'll happen. Right. Yeah. And I say I think it's got to be organizational punishment, which then that just becomes hard because there's just not much punishment you could do besides just humongous fines. Yeah, it's fines and draft picks, and yeah. how many draft picks equals. You know how egregious that, yeah. The penalty or the well, the fascinating thing to me will be is if the Astros have now put like some of their researchers on trying to find out how other teams are stealing signs and then trying to leak that out to get the heat <laughs> off of them. Or that seems like a very Astros thing to do. That's what I would do. Well, I I feel like I read somewhere that essentially. I don't know if someone from the Astros organization or just like a source in the Astros was basically like, oh, it'd be a shame if like we had to tell other people about other teams that we know about. Right. <laughs> Which I mean, I guess they're waiting to see you know, more what the punishment is before, but it could get much, it's going to get much messier mm-hmm. than it is going to just bury a very quick, I mean, I, be are they shocked the, if it was a very quick and clean. Are they the only ones electronically stealing signs? No. Are they the only ones probably doing it this brazenly? Probably. Yeah, well, and the other interesting thing is, I mean, how many other stadiums or teams going to the lengths that the Nationals did during the... I mean, well, it was the World Series, of course, but I... They, they described the system they came up with. So they used signs that they had never used before. Yeah. And they had a a rotation of five deep. Yeah. For each oh, pitcher. it was like a full on cipher. They had arm sleeves for each of their catchers that you would see on a quarterback's arm. Yeah. Um, so then on top of that, they were then using multiple signs as if someone was on second base at all times. Yeah. And then would also do um 
like I don't want to call the, them games, but yeah, it's like based on the number of outs in the inning, that would be like after that sign is like at the, the second if there are two outs after the second sign mm-hmm. is when like that's the sign that's on and that kind of stuff. The uh, the one that I thought was really clever was uh, what they called chase the two. Yeah. And they would put down signs and it would be the sign after they put down two fingers. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, just crazy. It was just all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, but yeah, that's people pointed out they were not doing that in St. Louis. I no, that doesn't mean that the Cardinals aren't stealing signs, but I think it does mean that the Astros are probably doing this at a level. Other people are not. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Yankees were saying that they were hearing whistling in the dugout. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the other one I saw series, recently. Which, did you see? I've seen some of the whistling. Did you whistling. watch the John? John Boy. Yeah, the whistle. Video. I've seen some of the whistling ones. I'm not, it's not as well, not obvious that, as the, the. The quote from Hinch afterwards, where essentially he was like, man, if I knew it was that easy to get under their skin, we would have been doing that since spring training. Yeah. It's like you ass hat. Yeah. <laughs> no, the whistling one is not as convincing. There's a lot of whistle sounds. Mm-hmm. The trash can one is pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, you know, in baseball prospectus, Rob Arthur uh, had like an auditory analysis of one of their games, and it was like very clear. Like there was much louder amount of sound just in the raw audio. Not even being like, oh, that's a trash can being hit. It's just every single time there was a breaking ball the sound, the audio being picked up was way louder than it was for any other pitch in the game. And there was no similar difference for the opposing team. It was very obvious. Um, the other one I heard is that maybe they were using like kind of patches that were actually like, like electronically signaled that could then vibrate or something to let them know what pitch was coming. But anyway, that's crazy. I don't even know if such a thing exists. But like, if that were the case, what could Major League Baseball do that would even come close to an appropriate punishment at that point? Strip searches. (laughs) The Astros must be strip searched before every game as they walk onto the field by the umpires, which will lead to hilarious introductions for them. Um, no, the interesting question for me really will be, I think that you say there's a lot of teams trying to use electronic means to seal signs. I think what might set the Astros apart here is that they probably are using, we're using some sort of machine learning algorithm mm-hmm. to be able to take in, you know, the data, read the pixels. And basically they would, you know, you build a training data set of saying, all right, this is the set of pixels. This is the pitch that was thrown. This is the set of pixels. This is the pitch that was thrown. And have your machine learning algorithm like decide like, oh, when it looks like this, this is, you know, that's the pitch that's being called. Um, and be able to way more accurately than a human being would could read what the sign is, make a decision on what the pitch is gonna be, uh, and spit that back out. Uh, and the speed at which they were able to pick up those signs is impressive. Uh, especially, you know, unless they had it. Yeah, it's definitely possible that very, very high definition camera feed um, that they could see it. But the other thing that Rob Arthur pointed out is they they were also p- 
picking up the breaking balls really fast in the game. It was like only like a four or five pitches mm-hmm. into the game, which suggests that it wasn't like one guy just staring at it and marking it down saying, okay, that was a curve. That was, you know, whatever that it was probably more of an algorithm that, you know, took those five pitches and said, okay, that corresponds to that, that corresponds to that, that corresponds to that uses historical data as well. Uh, and basically just confirmed and then they just start following it. Um, and I think that might set it apart. And I think that's where you would get into the out really outside of the spirit of the rules. Yeah. Um, because it's one thing to have a camera feed and then have a guy kind of watching the camera feed and trying to guess, you know, figure out what signs are coming in or, you know, having somebody with binoculars or whatever, trying to like look and figure it out, like using just human brain power. Uh, it's another thing to go to such advanced levels where you're just writing algorithms that will try to pick up tiny, minute things that you couldn't as a human being to figure out, you know, what signs are coming. Well, and I mean, <clears throat> Stealing signs is one thing. And if you have a guy, you know, out there, or even if you're just watching the replays as it goes through to try and figure out what the signs are, fine. But the live aspect of that feed and the swiftness in which they go from the sign comes in to the signal is given to the batter is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. Um, Manfred's already come out and said that they're doing a thorough investigation, blah, blah, blah. But right now they're only focused on the Astros. And then if more comes from that, they will continue to go down that rabbit hole. Yep. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, So the Nats currently have lost both first baseman, a backup catcher, a third baseman, a second baseman. They've also lost they've lost three first basemen, technically. Zimmerman, Adams, and Kendrick. Uh, that's true. I think of Kendrick is middle and third, but that's true. Um The entire bench. Yep. The entire bench. Uh besides like maybe Stevenson slash uh Taylor. And their number two starter. Yes. And number five. Starter. And I didn't consider them to have a number five starter anyway. Fair point. (laughs) It's also true. Because, I mean, who was that? I guess Hellickson Hellickson was technically the person. Yeah. Otherwise, they have Ross, Ross, Voth, and Fetty are all under contract next year. The interesting thing with those three, which is not the best place to start the offseason, but they're all, all three of those guys are at options. So they have to get kind of creative. Um, you know, you want they're not going to be in a position where they can put one of them on the major leagues and send the other two to the minors, and then rotate them as their quality dictates. Um, but yeah, so I they're not huge holes. Uh, and for the most part, I Steven Strasburg isn't going anywhere. He just wants more money. They'll be able to pay him more money. That should not be concerning to anybody in the least. No, and I mean, it's already been out there that he could re-sign even before the GM meeting or the, the winter, winter meetings. meetings. Yeah, um, in this day and age, it would be incredibly fast. Yeah, and those are, I think they start the 8th of December. Mm-hmm. Um, so not the Monday after Thanksgiving, the Monday after that. Uh, yep. So yeah, I don't, 
I don't perceive that one to be an issue. He hasn't given the indication that he'd like to go anywhere else. It always seemed like a, this seems like a great time to renegotiate my contract. Yep. Um, oh. which go for it, man, get your money. Yep. Uh, you know, Brian Zimmerman isn't going anywhere. It's just, you know, finding a way, finding out, you know, the right amount to pay him. That's not $18 million, I did, which was his option for next year. I did think it was funny. Um, here in the last couple of days, there was something about like the Nats hadn't made contact with Zimmerman yet. And it's like, yeah, he's going to be like, he's not the last thing they're going to do, but they're going to take care of the big business first. Right. And then what's like, left, then they'll talk about what there is to give him. Yeah. You're not like, oh, we got to offer Ryan Zimmerman. He's going to run and go take that offer from the Royals. Right. Yeah. No one's really chomping at the bit to uh, jump on Ryan Zimmerman right now. So they got time. No, I'm Ryan Zimmerman's not jumping in the pit to go anywhere else, so it'll be fun. Um, yeah, so that kind of solves, for the most part, I mean, I think fifth starter, you maybe one of Ross, Voth, Fetty gets traded. I would bet if they were, it'd be Ross, since he has the most projectable talent, uh, and that kind of stuff, you know, scales logarithmically. Um, so having, you know, even though, I think on the Nat side, you wouldn't say Ross is that much better than Fetty or Voth on the side of what prospects you could get back. I think it's much higher. Just that the small improvement could be a huge improvement in terms of what prospect cost you can get back. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be awesome. And in any case, but it could be a lot better uh, than you would see for the other two. Um, and so that kind of handles that. Uh, you have Wander Suero, Tanner Rainey, Sean Doolittle back in the bullpen um, but that still leaves you four spots you need to figure out uh, and then you also have this new 26 man spot which I really need to look at the rule I don't know if they're actually required to have a 26 person in their roster the whole time I believe the change is because in the past the roster size has been 25 but technically you could have a roster of only 24 players uh, you cannot go lower than 24. The required minimum was 24 and the maximum was 25. I think the change now is that the minimum is 25 and the maximum is 26. Uh, I could see it teams like the Nats, uh, who are definitely going to be pushing up against the luxury tax again if they sign Strasburg and they sign Rendon and, you know, they kind of bring in, you know, quality players at these other spots, decide to not use that 26 spot. And just play with the 25-man roster again because it's worth it to them not to pay 500000 you know, 560000 so dollars for a whole season. And, you know, because the last this last year, they just snuck under the luxury tax. If they do it again, they'll probably be very close to the line again. So why spend that extra money for 26 person when you've, proven for a while now that you're perfectly fine playing with only 25. Uh, you are correct. The minimum roster size increases from 24 to 25. Um, there's also a maximum of 13 pitchers. Yeah. And you have to declare people as pitchers or not pitchers. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is it only goes up by one on September 1st. Yeah. It only goes up to a maximum of 14. Yeah. But but your total goes up to twenty eight, which is a weird. So basically, you go to fourteen pitchers and fourteen position players, which is very odd. Yeah. 
<clears throat> He'll basically say you just don't want parades of relievers in September. They don't want parades of relievers ever anymore. Which, I mean, I'm okay with. Yes. For the most part. You get some of those in September where it's a game that, hell, doesn't even really mean anything. Yeah. But we're going to go and well, parade 12 pitchers out. To be fair, I think the much easier solution, I mean, not to necessarily that, but to a lot of the problems, I mean, they've very complicated system to solve a problem that would be just as easily solved by instituting a mercy rule. Yeah. And ending games. Because the problem is, like, a lot of these guys are coming into games because, you know, they're down 7 nothing, 8 nothing. They're like, well, we're not going to come back and win this game. Don't use our real pitchers. We're going to use a position player. And that kind of stuff. Those kind of shenanigans. So if you, if you just had a mercy rule that said, hey, if you're down 6 nothing, you're down by more than 7 runs in the 7th inning or later, the game ends. Yeah, that would work. Uh, you miss out on those one in a million comebacks like the Nats had against the Mets this year in September, uh, which is unfortunate. But for the most part, actually, no, because they were only done six runs. Yeah, so they're still on the it. other side of it. So, you know, they, there is a little bit of chance that you, you miss out on a comeback that would have been really cool. But the way teams are already playing these games, they're not really trying to make those comebacks anyways. Mm-hmm. So, for the most part, when it happens, it's because they accidentally stumbled upon it. Um, then really actual strategy. So, I don't really see a problem. And that makes this whole system much simpler. I mean, they've made a very complicated way of not having mercy rules, but trying to prevent teams from just using, from just giving up. Yeah, but also, I mean, the mercy rule thing, you run into issues with... Um value proposition on ticket pricing right and um advertising which let's be honest they're more concerned about the latter right the advertising <laughs> is kind of different in terms of ticket pricing how many people are really standing staying around for a big blowout in the eighth and the ninth inning yeah those people are probably gonna go home early anyways um you know teams could come up with promotions around that Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, we'll give you, you know, a discount for another game. You know, it's you get a percentage discount on your next ticket based on what the final score was. So if we, it's like, so, and it only like if it's a home team. So it's like, oh, you know, if we got mercy ruled and lost 10 to nothing, you can now come back for another game and we'll give you 10% off your ticket purchase or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's ways to kind of play around with that to make it work. Um, you're right. The advertising is a bigger issue, but I don't know how much that directly affects them. Because for the most part, the advertising thing, I mean, besides the teams that own their own networks, it the w- advertising thing is really an indirect. It's they get paid the rights fee and then the network's getting the advertising yeah, money. Yeah, the rights fee is where it would come down as the problem because yeah. we paid you on the expectation that we were going to be able to sell. Right. And now you're saying that the game is ending. Yes. Four percent of your games a year are gonna be lower. So right. we think we should pay you X yeah. lower on a yearly basis. That's true. And then you get into all that. Um so yeah, that'll be interesting. Um do you, do you see them in play 
for any of these couple of guys that may be on the trade block and available in a Mookie Betts or a Chris Bryant or there was a third one who is slipping my mind at the moment. I thought there were three. I mean, I could see if they don't bring back Rendon, I could see bringing in Chris Bryant, trading for Chris Bryant. I don't think you do that uh, because one, any trade you make is going to definitely require key boom. Well, I don't know. Maybe Chris Bryant wouldn't. I don't know. Because, you know, trade values now are, are weird. Yeah. But for the most part, you would think based on the quality of prospects they otherwise have, you're kind of having to trade key boom if you're trading for somebody good. And I don't know if that's really worth it to them at this point. Uh, especially that free agent third base. The other nice thing for the Nats is the places where they have holes. You know, if they don't bring back Rendon, the other free agent third basemen are pretty good. I mean, you have Josh Donaldson. Um, uh, I just bring up the GM project so I can freaking remember <laughs> who else is a free agent. Uh, Moustakis is out there too. Or is he primarily a first baseman now? Oh, no, Musakis, yeah, Musakis is a third baseman. It's another, you know, kind of lower end option. Um, oh, and Todd Frazier, who it's, you know, much no. lower end. That you probably, you know, he's okay, but not great. But I, you, if you don't get Rendon, you could get Donaldson, you could get Moustakis. Um, You know, you don't necessarily have to move immediately to try and trade for somebody like Chris Bryant. Um, second base is also an interesting spot for them because uh, they have a lot of people who are very similar. Uh, so you have Brian Dozier, who you're familiar with, is Drew Cabrera. Uh, we also guys got like Jonathan Scoop, who I think was an All Star for the Twins last year, or was you know played close enough to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Scooter Jeanette, who had previously been an All Star, had some injury issues and wasn't super great last year, but was okay. Uh, Eric Sogard, who's a sneaky underrated face of MLB, uh, who had a really good season with the Rays, but you know could flex between a backup and a starting role. Um, and Scoot so a couple was- other guys. So yeah, second base is a place will be interesting. That oh, and Wilmer Flores, uh, who- which he could be a good bench guy. Yeah, a lot of those guys you not know, I mentioned also could be decent as bench options. Um, I think that the nice thing for the Nats is I don't think there's that many people looking for second baseman. There's no premium second baseman to throw a lot of money on. Uh, But the glut of candidates, uh, if the market moves the same way it has been the last couple of years, could mean one or two of those guys we just named is still waiting around in February and the Nats can sign them for only five, six million. Um, I think the ideal would be Brian Dozier's market is slow and the Nats are able to bring him back for only like six or seven million dollars because he was a really awesome guy I mean Gerardo Parra gets deservedly most of the credit Mm -hmm. for turning around the clubhouse but I think Brian if you didn't have Brian Dozier there I don't think what Parra did would have been nearly as effective because Dozier was really that bridge between the Latin players and the white players um yeah, Parr still would have been cool. He still would have helped out, you know, Soto and Robles and Anibal Sanchez, but you probably don't see things like Steven Strasburg dancing in the dugout for a home run. No. If Brian Dozier isn't there to kind of connect cultures. 
So I would love to have him back. He didn't actually do that badly last year. He was about league average hitter, played slightly above average defense for a second baseman. Um, it kind of got buried because he started off pretty cold. Uh, and then right when he was really heating up, that's when the Nats brought in Cabrera, who was completely on fire. Yeah. So Cabrera just started taking the at-bats instead. Yeah, I mean, for a second baseman, like, first off, I will say this, his OPS above career average. Yeah. Um, And I mean... Seven seventy one. I'll take that out of the second baseman. Yeah, it's fine. Especially if you're playing good enough defense at second base. Uh, where's his value on defense? Of course, I'm not looking at Fangraphs. I think they're in a good position there. I think they're in a good position in first base. I mean, got there are plenty of guys like Matt Adams, including Matt Adams. Uh, hopefully, they could bring back Howie Kendrick. He might be too popular based on his playoff heroics that, you know, it's not worth getting him specifically, but there are plenty of players with a similar skill set to Howie Kendrick out there um, to kind of work with Ryan Zimmerman. I mean, the thing is that there's a lot of good bench options that could be low level starters, which is kind of what they ended up with this year when they worked with Sim Adams, Kendrick, Cabrera and Dozier and kind of just moved them all around a little bit between first and second base. I think there's a good opportunity to do that again next year. Uh, There's a lot of good players on the market that could work for that kind of situation. Yeah. I feel like they might lose out on Kendrick. Um, Unfortunately, I think he played well enough that I don't think he's going to get a giant deal anywhere. I mean, he's what? 36, 37. Um, But it might be someone will give him like, decent enough money to at least have the opportunity to start for them on right. a regular basis. Which is fine. I mean, you know, if that's what happens and if that's what happens and he leaves, that'll probably be for the best for the most part. It'll still be a little sad. Um, I think that's where you kind of maybe have to have a little bit of, you know, you got to be careful that you don't just say yes to everything. Because you want to bring all these guys back? Well, the quote out of Rizzo um, was something along the lines of, you can't make decisions based on nostalgia. Right. Um, Which I agree. And there were a lot of people who were jumping on that right at the outset of like, does that mean he's already like prepping us for Rendon and Strasburg not to come back? And it's like, yeah. those aren't guys you're resigning out of nostalgia. nostalgia right. Those are re- you're resigning because they're very good. Right. I, I, to be fair, I think nostalgia should factor in a little bit. I think, but if you have the choice sign between... the entire roster. Oh, back. sure. No. Uh, but if you, have, I think it's more, if you have the choice between Howie Kendrick at 7 million or, some a random guy will say exists who is very similar to Howie Kendrick for six and a half or six million. Maybe spend the extra million dollars to get Howie Kendrick instead because the fans will like that more. Um, on the other hand, if Howie Kendrick's going to go for like $10 million for one year or you could get Eric Sogard or somebody like that for $5 million, maybe just get Eric Sogard. Yeah, and I mean, the more that I think about it, um, Flores would be like 
your tailor-made replacement for Kendrick. Oh yeah. Can play just about any position you want him to play. Right. And has a decent enough bat. Yeah, he's a pretty good hitter. Um yeah, like I said, can technically play at almost every position. Um can only really play at this point maybe first base well defensively. Which that's very similar to what Kendrick could do. Yeah. Um, I don't know that you want him at short, but I think you'd be okay with him at one, two, or three. Yeah, I mean, like I said, very <clears> similar <throat> skill set to to Howie Kendrick. Um, you know, maybe not quite as offensively explosive, but who knows if Howie really is able to do that again? I mean, mm-hmm. that was way outside the norm for him what he did last year. So, I mean, I would prefer to have Howie back, but if it doesn't work out, that's fine. I think the the bigger point is they have a lot of options here. Uh, for those spots that they don't have filled yet. We haven't talked about the bullpen. There's a million good bullpen arms out in free agency that you just kind of figure out what the right combination is. Um, The other nice thing is if they want to bring back both Strasburg and Rendon, they can easily do that and make good upgrades at the remaining spots without putting the luxury tax in jeopardy. Do you think they spend decent money on a bullpen? I mean, it depends. If you bring back Strasburg, oh, you know, you're definitely gonna bring back Strasburg. If Rendon is also coming back, um, that really limits how much you can't do a huge lift. I think you definitely pull. I would say you'd want to try to bring someone like Daniel Hudson in back. Uh, you know, somebody who might not be one of the the top guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, is a you know, reliable, good reliever, you know, for you know the mid level to kind of six, seven million price, and then maybe grab. Unfortunately, the Braves already took one of the top guys from the market, and Will Smith. Um, but Will Harris, who we've been talking about, is a free agent. Don Patances is a free agent after being injured pretty much all of last year. Uh, I think there's one or two other guys who are that kind of quality level. Um, but I'd say you bring in one more like really high quality person and then one kind of medium and at least have three solid relievers pairing them with Doolittle. Uh, and I think you can make a decent bet that Rainey and Suero improve again yeah. next year. Um, and then you just kind of fill out maybe with some other candidates to be decent but aren't amazing. So, you know, people like maybe like Sergio Romo, kind of guys like that. So slightly more spending on the bullpen than last year. Yeah, it would definitely be more spending than last year. Because, um, I mean, they spent... And if you don't bring back Rendon and you're saving you know, $10 million a year to get Donaldson or even more to get Moustakis, then definitely just plow a lot of that money into more elite relief pitching. Yeah. Because last year Rosenthal was nine? Yeah, it was like eight or nine. And then he was really the only acquisition they made that was like decent money. Everybody else was low level kind of scrap heap, see what we can pull off and Exactly. Which so. didn't really work out. I don't know what you're talking about. They're World Series champions. <laughs> I guess it sort of worked out in, in one way. That I mean, honestly, that's gonna be Rizzo's answer anytime someone brings up the bullpen. Did we win a championship? Yeah. Cool. cool. Shut, Shut up. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Really helpful, man. Good. Good answer. 
It's like, you know, we do kind of want to win another one at some point in time in the future here. <laughs> so, let's see. Anything else we need to cover? We've covered that the Astros lost a World Series. We covered that the Astros are bad Gene, and Gene, cheaters. cheaters. Um... Yeah, I think that's about it. The winter meetings start the 8th of December. I would imagine sometime around then we will get back together and record another one of these. Um, But yeah, really, we're just waiting for something to happen at this point. Um, The only free agency signing uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago um, with Will Smith coming off the board. Um, But that's really been it. I have a feeling that Donaldson is might sign quicker just to get his money and go rather than let wait on Rendon to set the market. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I mean, I, I think we know from historical precedent, uh, Mike Bustakis will definitely not sign anytime soon. No, he'll sign in like February. Yeah, that's what he always is able to sign. He's always signing in February. So the Nets will have that option. I guess he's a pretty good player. Yeah. That wouldn't be the worst pivot. Um, I guess the other interesting question is really, do they decide to go into the season with Carter Keboom as a planned starter? Or do they get veterans for all of their spots? And then if Keboom takes over, then that's cool. My thought would be, you'd have to have someone that you're at least comfortable with starting there. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know that you can just count on him being good to go. Yeah. I mean, he was, he had some issues in his first stint uh, in the majors. I mean, he definitely showed some good signs at points, but I mean, he definitely had some defensive lapses and then was having some issues with the bat and, you know, hitting out in Fresno doesn't exactly tell us anything no. <laughs> there have been plenty of superstars that hit out there so exactly so that'll be interesting to see yeah all right then with that we will see you all in a few weeks until then we are ghosts <laughs>